If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Brad here again, flying solo. This was a fun one, and an episode we have had scheduled for months. I was able to sit down with Robert P. Jones, CEO and founder of Public Religious Research Institute, or PRRI, and most recently author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. I absolutely urge everyone to pick up the book, but in the meantime, you can get a sense of his arguments in our conversation. It was, as he noted later, an organic conversation about the book and issues dealing with religion and politics. We start with the election and polling and then dig into his arguments about white supremacy. Along the way, we discuss critical race theory and look at some of the news since he submitted the book for publication. I did not edit this as much as some and wanted everyone to get a sense of the flow of our conversation. Robert Jones. Let me not waste your time. I know you're very busy. I can imagine. Has has your uh, work schedule gotten busier after the election or? It's been pretty steady. I think it's starting like, after, you know, next week is tapering off and, and this week a little bit too. Um, so I, I think this is the first week where it hasn't just been stacked up. Right. You know, back to back. Um, right. So I think we're starting to see, yeah, some of the taper off after the election. Thank goodness. <laughs> the craziness. Yeah. And today, of course, the electoral college votes. And right. So- See what happens with that. Well, uh, let me just ask you real quick, since we're talking about the election, um, give it, looking at that through the through the lens of your book and your work, um, because I, I I'm more of the document driven historian. I didn't do really any social science kind of uh, uh, statistical analysis, anything like that. So I'm dealing with polls and stuff like that is really outside of my comfort level. So I'm curious. I know that there are problems with exit polls and probably this year more so than normal just because of so many mail-in ballots. Are you starting to get information or data on on what has happened in terms of the breakdown of who voted for whom? And are you seeing any kind of erosion in either white Catholic or white evangelical mm-hmm. support for, for Trump? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, well, first of all, just some general comments about the exit polls. I mean, you're right that... Um, you know, the the polls are pretty good at the um, kind of national level. Um, uh, but once you get down to subgroups, you do have to take them with a little bit with a grain of salt. Um, and they certainly have the added problem this year of having to blend so much early voting with same day voting and getting getting that that balance all right. Now, they, they did know this was coming, made a lot of adjustments in how they typically, you know, do this. So, I you know, I think they've made some compensations uh, so that it's, I think, essentially accurate. Um, The good news is, though, that we actually have two exit polls uh, this year, um, where we usually only have one set of uh, media exit polls. But this year, um, uh, the Associated Press and Fox News and NPR actually all got together and did their own uh, thing. with. uh, So it's it's called the AP for Associated Press VoteCast poll. Um, and then there's also the national election pool poll. Uh, w- the good news is that for, for the most part, the, the, the numbers look pretty consistent. So I think that's what yeah. I would 
tell all your listeners to do is just check both of them, right? When in doubt right. and use them to triangulate. But but basically what we see is very little movement at all mm. from historical vote patterns. Um, you know, we have white evangelicals, for example, were 76% in one uh, poll and 81% in the other voting for Trump. That's right in line right. with their historical support for Republican candidates. And what everybody I think forgets is that that's the number everybody tends to know is the evangelical number. Um, but also white mainline Protestants and white Catholics both voted about six and 10 uh, for wow. Donald Trump. And that's also basically right in line with where they've been. So remarkably, I think, um, you know, given, you know, the very unorthodox candidate Trump has been particularly, you know, for Christian voters to support um, the pandemic, you know, raging on, um, you know, uh, even heading into the election that we're across the 200,000, 200, 200,000 death, uh, you know, Mark, and, and yet barely anything changed. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at our um, favorability numbers across this year uh, for Trump, uh, for example, um, also very, very stable, um, you know, there were like a little bit of more volatility among white mainline and white Catholic um, uh, Americans. But at the end of the day, um, they ended right where they were, where they started the year Interesting. Um, at, at 2019 ended, ended 2020, right at, at effectively the same levels of support, uh, for Trump. Wow. I, I did see, and I can't remember where I want to say Washington post, but I thought there was a story about maybe some erosion among some of those, those pocket in, in certain States, perhaps even Michigan, but it sounds like from what you're saying, you're not seeing much in the way of, of, I, I'm sure at the, at different local levels, there might be some variability, but yeah. I mean, a quick word of caution. So again, if, if there, you should put like, you know, one grain of salt at the national level, right. you should probably put half a shaker of salt at the state level, you know, um, because the sample sizes are smaller at the right. state level than they are at the national level. So if you get smaller sample sizes, then you start digging into subgroups, you know, your margin of error gets bigger uh, there. And even, but even, Michigan's interesting because one exit poll showed a nine point drop. Uh, in white evangelical support for Trump. And that's probably some of the coverage that you saw. Okay. But if you double check that against the other exit poll, it shows no drop uh. in support. So it, we have kind of conflicting um, data from the two gotcha. uh, exit polls in Michigan. Um, and then the other word of caution is some people have been uh, interpreting, uh, looking at Biden versus Clinton uh, changes from 2016 to 2020. But a, a word of caution there is that um, in 2016, we had some third party candidates that actually right. drew support away from Hillary Clinton that we did not have in 2020. Right. So you can get, you can look, it, it artificially looks like Biden picked up numbers when really he's just picking up people who were voting third party. The apples to apples comparison is Trump to Trump 2016 uh-huh. to 2020. And there again, at, at best, we've got conflicting information, but nothing that looks like uh, any movement. And if you look at you know, the, all the other kind of states, particularly in the South, Georgia, Texas, North Carolina, right. um, there's it's, there's just no movement at all. Um, so so the difference really is, is that Biden was able to get out more of the Democratic voters really than than take any away from Trump's 2016. I mean, obviously, Trump got out. Yeah, more he voters was just too. But yeah, just say he was able to pick up some of those people who voted third party gotcha. um, in, in 2016. Yeah. Uh, you said, by the way, about exit polls, that there are problems when you dig down into the subgroups. Is that just because you get into smaller uh, numbers? Is that because uh, people are sometimes not honest when they leave the polling? Uh, you know, I don't think it's so much about um, 
that honesty thing, you know, we have, there's also been this kind of shy Trump voter theory and, right. and we, I, I have not seen a lot of evidence uh, for that. So I, I think it really is more about sampling issues gotcha. um, than it is anything when we get down to smaller subgroups. Is that the same problem then that, I mean, I'm sure, you know, Nate Silver has been very defensive since the election, given, given kind of, although he was in 2016, I remember him being very cautionary about Hillary's lead and saying, look, yeah, she can win, but so can he. And, and he did pretty much the same thing, it seems to me, during this election. But it, I felt I, I was expecting a little bit more uh, from Biden in Florida, in some of these other areas. And yet, you know, he did exactly what we were hoping for in Georgia. So, you know, so I, I guess it, it's going to vary from state to state. Is, is that is that a good way of seeing it? Yeah, I think it's right. I mean, a couple of things to say is that, you know, it, it's worth noting in 2016, there was a lot of chatter about the polls failing or polls being broken. Uh, but the truth is, um, you know, at the national level, Hillary Clinton won by three percentage points. And that's right, right where most of the national polls had it. Right. There were some big misses in some key states like Michigan and Wisconsin. And so right. I think that's where the problems were. Um, and to tell you the truth, I don't think we know yet. There were still some misses in some of those key states again this year. It wasn't the same problem because the problems that were there before were actually fixed. Um, so okay. it was a different problem. <laughs> Um, of some kind. And anyone who says they know what that problem is, is, is just not informed uh, because we just don't have the data back yet uh, to be able to really know, you know gotcha. what's happened. I would say it's probably going to take us till February, March to really sort out fully like what happened and to kind of know, okay, there's where, there's where it seems like it was off and, and to figure out what was going on. But again, at the national level, I right. think at the end of the day, we're going to come in not too far off, right? right. Um, Biden's going to win by 6 million plus votes. Um, then at the end of the day, the, polls had him plus six points plus right. six or seven points it's not going to be that far off it'll certainly be within the margin of error um it's going to be again at the state level again, where it is harder um i think and particularly this year uh with predicting who is going to be a likely voter in a pre-election poll right with all the varied ways we can vote and and an unprecedented uh situation where we don't have past data to draw on you know it's just a lot harder this year right 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 okay um uh slight different change. I know you're familiar with yeah. Samuel Perry, um, uh, university of Oklahoma. Um, yep. he, he went to Perry, he went to OU after I left. So I've never met him in person. Um, I'm curious, what do you think, what do you think about his and, uh, his, um, co co-authors, uh, argument about Christian nationalism. And I, I was struck by when I was reviewing that, when I was getting ready to talk to you, how he really does separate out the idea of evangelical or deeply religious thought and this sort of more, I guess we would call this as historian, secular religious kind of melding of nationalism and religious imagery so that you can have people in this white nationalist kind of movement who are really not, are, are pretty secular when it comes right down to it. Do you, do you find that compelling and do you find that matched in the data you see? Yeah, I think we we're up to slightly different things. Um, you know, this compatibility, this there's some like, if you were doing Venn diagrams, you know, there's like kind of these over, overlapping pieces. So when he brings white nationalism into the realm of, of Christianity, I think we're actually talking about very right. similar phenomena and our two data sets are kind of measuring uh, similar things. Um, the only thing I'd say is that when, when I'm talking about this, I'm really careful um, that, that, and I think generally speaking, you know, if you look at their work, I mean, they're mostly talking about this too. It's really white Christian nationalism. Right. I think we should be really clear about that. Right. Um, that we're, they're really, the threats that we're seeing to democracy right now, 
within the Republican Party as a result of kind of white evangelical in particular, but also white Catholic and, and white mainline support within uh, the GOP and support for Trump. That threat to democracy um, is certainly wrapped up with, with nationalism, but it, it's it's really um, wrapped up with whiteness. Um, and I think that's the key thing I always want to say is that it, we're really not talking about just Christian nationalism, which sounds like it's something that runs across equally across African-American traditions as well. Right. right. Gotcha. But that's not really the threat we're talking about. We're really talking about white Christian nationalism uh, and, and the way that white supremacy has seeped into um, you know, uh, the, the American church and certainly in white too long, that that's really what I think is like the most important, uh, focus and, and really where the reform, you know, needs to happen, um, is, is looking at white churches, um, and how they have aided, abetted and outright supported white supremacy historically. Um, and, and, and there, how there really hasn't been much of a reckoning about that. Right. I mean, that that was, uh, you know, my my historical work was in the American West and environment. So, you know, I, I studied, obviously, the South and I studied the Civil War. Um, but that was, you know, for my exams, that wasn't and then for teaching the survey course. So I was really struck by that. I was struck by your argument that um, that previous historical analysis had seen those evangelicals or those white Christians as sort of uh, pulled into white supremacy, that they were there because they wanted to keep. I want to say it's Christine Hireman's uh, argument about um, uh, sort of the the deal that Southern evangelicals made in the post and early national period to say they didn't want him talking about slavery or uh, upsetting patriarchy. And so they were able to, as, as I recall, uh, focus on gambling, drinking, other kinds of other sins, but they had to keep mm-hmm. their mouth shut. And that that strikes me as a kind of they're just going along to keep their power. And you are arguing, no, in fact, they were actually leading the charge. They're the ones who are actually, um, right. I mean, I, I use the term to somebody that what you're referring to is, a, a mother dough, uh, if you're a sourdough person or something like that, mm, that this mm-hmm. is the, this is a starter that's keeping it going. Um, is that, is that, is that a correct statement you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to kind of tear down this idea that either, you know, white Christian churches were somehow captive to their culture so that right. white supremacy was something out there instead of something in here inside of our churches. Right. Um, and, and and to take seriously, you know, that when we think about, um, you know, people just hear the two terms like, you know, church and civil rights movement, the word association they think of as black churches, right, who were right. hubs of organizing and taking courageous stands, supporting the civil rights movement. But what they don't think of um, is the massive resistance that white Christian churches provided uh, to the civil rights movement, you right. know, and 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 that was it's not all that under the surface, really. I mean, you know, right. I take like, you know, I, I delved into um, First Baptist Church in Jackson, for example, you know, that was right. the home church of Ross Barnett, um, you know, one of the most segre- rapidly segregationist governors, even a state of like Mississippi has seen, <laughs> uh, who ran on a, um, you know, he he would on this regularly on the stump, he he would use this line that God was the original segregationist, um, you know, and he was also while he was running for governor, he was the head of the men's Sunday school program at First Baptist Church in, in Jackson, and when he was elected. Uh, they held a special sanctification service for him where they gave him this big fancy pulpit Bible and blessed, you know, his segregationist uh, campaign and, and, uh, and governorship. Uh, and nobody, nobody even winced, um, right. you know, at that. Right. Yeah. It, it strikes me that that part of what you're addressing, and I really like this is that for, 
and you you raise this idea of innocence that 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 Christians see themselves as almost a a moral innocence. Um, and I, I've seen this that people assume that going to a church like that is just an a, a objective moral good that that in itself is a good act. And it seems to me that that then feeds into this sense of goodness. And so in imagining it in a in a historical context, they see themselves as the abolitionist group. They see themselves as the people who were against child labor, the people who were you know, helping Martin Luther King, not the people who were supporting. When, as you're pointing out, most Christians were on the other side. I mean, they, they were, yeah. especially in the South and, and, and not just the South. I mean, by the way, I teach I have taught Colorado history since I've been back in Colorado. Mm. And I didn't realize the the how racist my state has been. And, you know, I mean, you know, this the Klan, you know, highest second highest membership in 1925 to Indiana is Colorado. So, you know, wow. I know it's not just that, but I am struck by and it leads me to a question I have. I have an observation about this evangelical crowd um, that's disparaging. I don't mean it that way, but there seems to be a lack of historical memory there. So you could have, I mean, you talk very, and one of the things you do very well in your book is really bring in that kind of personal connection to your, you know, seeing the Confederate flag, seeing the Klan members outside a, a football game. That that was stunning to me. Um, and yet, so in our lifetime, we, we had Klan members showing up to games. We had, and still do, but we had we had open resistance to, to yeah. integration, all of that kind of stuff. And yet in the churches that I grew up in, there was zero mention of that, even though it was within, in that point, it was five or six years pre previous. I mean, so yeah. is there, is there a, can, do you have a sense of why that group doesn't even seem to, there's no kind of post-mortem or, you know, there's no assessment of what, what has happened. I'm rambling, but you understand. My yeah, point. no, no. I mean, I, I, I think you may be being a little bit too kind um, here. You know, I, I think the historical record by my lights um, really does goes to not just a, a kind of omission, you know, here, but, a, but a willful suppression right. of this history in real time. Right. And so, right. You know, there was, it was kind of like this, you know, even, even as there was this participation in like, like I said, like a, a governorship of Ross Barnett that was being bankrolled by deacons in the first Baptist church and blessed by the pastor and, you know, right. uh, and, and supported by the Sunday school program, like all of that stuff, um, you know, at, at the same time, there was a way in which the, all of those people squared that with being an upstanding Christian, right? right? Um, that, that, the, and it was because there was still this basic belief that God intended. I think we have to just say this out loud because it sounds so odd mm. to, I think, contemporary ears, you know, but that God intended white people to be uh, above and over in authority right. over African-Americans and people of color. Um, in the country, that that was actually God's intention um, for the organization of human society. That was a bedrock belief um, only a generation back, you know. And so right. when you've got that kind of belief uh, there, um, you, it, this is all very seamless, um, you know, a part of part of a worldview. And so, you know, but but it, it is striking to me that in a, you know, like in the church that I grew up in, um, and you know, so I went to you know. Uh, I went to public schools, but I also went, you know, this Baptist church, went to Baptist college, Baptist seminary, um, you know, and never got any ref critical reflection on our right. role in slavery, right. never got right. any critical reflection on our role in uh, suppressing our, our segregation. And in Mississippi, the churches took the lead in establishing these segregation academies, these private schools, 
right. as places for white students to escape the integration of our public schools in Mississippi. Right. You know, th- those were led by churches. I mean, the majority of those were connected in some way to churches, many times meeting in church basements before they had buildings. Right. Um, you know, they're private Christian academies uh, for the most part. Um, and and even that goes without much uh, reflection. So I think I'm hoping one of the things the book does is to kind of hold right. up a mirror to say, look, we have to reckon with this history. We can't pretend like it isn't what it is, right? Uh, right? Which was a straightforward upholding of white supremacy and justified and baptized by Christian theology. Yes, and I, I, I was just thinking, don't you have a senator from Mississippi, Cindy, uh, um, I forget her last name, uh, has a has a direct connection to one of those those white supremacist no, that's academies? Right. Yep. right, right. So, yep. so part of the question, I think, and as I was reading your book, I was thinking, I, I found it incredibly compelling. I think you did an excellent job, by the way, of, of weaving in uh, the statistical analysis, your own personal account, and the historical record. I really like that. One of the issues you raise, I think, that is a part of the problem in any kind of reform that you've talked about is just the basic idea of what it means to be a racist. So I was sitting here thinking as you were talking about this very overt and uh, conscious endorsement of of segregation or racism or white superiority in the South – uh, I'm thinking about those churches outside. I'm thinking about Colorado. I'm thinking about uh, the story I think you had in there about St. Louis, that it was the Episcopal Church that led some of the push towards, uh, you know, uh, deed restrictions, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Isabella Wilkerson. I, this is the first time I heard this. I'm sure you've heard this, but, you know, they're talking about Jim Crow in the South and James Crow in the North and West, you know, this kind of more. And so what I'm curious about is, do you have in those Episcopal Church, in those other, out, outside the Deep South, maybe the Catholic churches in New York that you talked about, this, or the mainline Protestant yep. that's more north, Northeast, do you still have the kind of, I'm thinking about the average person in the pew who, because uh, my take on this is that they do not want to see themselves as racist. They do not want to right. see that. And so they they find another way to endorse that system um, and I'm curious if you see a gradation. I mean, the deeper you are in the South, the more easy it is to be openly uh, I- endorsing that. But as you get out of there, it has to be a different way. Is that is that a possible explanation? You know, I think that most churches in the South have even gotten to where an overt affirmation of this is less possible, um, right. you know, and less acceptable. Um, but it's not that far. I mean, you know, if you just look at the um, kind of reactions, for example, to Black Lives Matter, right, right. even to the phrase, um, to the or or the you know the six Southern Baptist Seminary presidents that just this you know what a week yes. ago um, yes. came out with a statement condemning critical race theory um, without really naming what it is or showing they even had an understanding of what it is, frankly, um, you know, but just kind of kind of blanket uh, thing and, and saying the gospel is sufficient. Uh, for us, right? We don't right. need critical race theory. We don't need anything else, you know. And and obviously, the historical record has shown, uh, uh, I think, very clearly that uh, for for white Christians, the gospel has been woefully insufficient right. uh, to keep them from being uh, supporters of slavery, supporters of Jim Crow and segregation. Uh, so I don't know. How, I mean, it's a, talk about historical and blindness and amnesia. I mean, it's right there from what we're supposed to be leading the academic institutions right. and the Southern Baptist Convention right. is pretty shameful. Um, uh, but the, uh, but, but I think what's, what's happened is, is the way this takes form now, I, I think is, um, having established, you know, a hundred years of, of Jim Crow, um, you know, after kind of overthrowing reconstruction, um, and, and, and really, uh, you know, seeing, uh, 
it, the you know not until the mid 1960s do we get you know the um, kind of basic civil rights acts um, and 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 really overt resistance to those uh, by white right. Christians over right. uh, overwhelmingly. In fact, one of the reasons why the Republican Party today um, is overwhelmingly white and Christian is because those folks, their parents and grandparents were Democrats, right? Uh, right. Um, uh, prior to the civil rights act. Yeah. And once the, yeah. the democratic party becomes the, the party of civil rights, we have this great white flight, uh, right. white Christian flight, uh, from the democratic party to the Republican party. So that today, two thirds of the, of self-identified Republicans are white and Christian, uh, right. and only one third of Democrats, um, are, are white and Christian. I mean, that's been the fuel that's provided the structure for our uh, party polarization that we're that we're reeling, you know, still dealing with to, uh, with today, and so I think this, and we saw it in the in the we, we've heard it from President Trump, we've heard it from these seminary presidents. I think the way that that racism takes its most overt form today is a denial of past injustice, right. uh, and and a denial that injustice has any continued effects today. So despite the fact that you look, I mean, pick your you know measurement, um, health disparities, mortality disparities, income disparities, wealth disparities, COVID-19 disparities. Right. I mean, right. you pick a kind of composite measure, African-Americans and people of color hit twice as hard uh, by COVID-19, for example, as whites. Um, and yet in the face of all of that evidence, a kind of denial that, you know, our his, kind of our history, hundreds of years of, segrega- of, of slavery, segregation and discrimination, a denial that that has any effect in the present, I think is the, the biggest way that racism uh, you know, has, has put a kind of respectable face on, or tries to put a respectable face on itself today. It's it's the uh, the what do you call it the white Christian two step that I thought was yeah right. I mean that Al Mohler white that, Christian that, shuffle yeah. shuffle. Thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that that I think is is a perfect. I, I remember when that came out when Mohler's uh, study on Southern Seminary came out, and I I looked at it at least quickly to see. And of course, it was as you said. I mean, it it was very controlled in terms of what it looked at. And it was, and it was able to frame it in a history that they could then say, um, you know, well, that's not us now. But at the same time, as you point out, so I, I just that that passage where then they're endorsing those uh, early Christian Southern Baptists as good Christian men who would never endorse violence against another human, and you're like, wow, yeah, that's that's a that's a level of denial that's that's hard to kind of uh, understand. Yeah. Uh, the uh, speaking of critical race theory, because I'm very curious about this, it strikes me that most people don't even know what critical race theory, as you kind of uh, in, including these seminary presidents who have denounced it. Um, it seems to have I, I heard about it, actually, now that I think about it, not because because I, I don't study the law. And that's I know what came out of the legal understanding the basic kind of trying to change people's hearts and minds about race wasn't getting the effect that they wanted. That's my understanding. And so looking at these systemic issues that, that were there, but I only found out about it because in reading on Twitter or Facebook among conservative Christian people, I would find people say, oh, mm-hmm. you're just pulling out CRT. And I had to look it up because I didn't know what they were talking about. And then I found, you know, they right. wanted to bring in cultural Marxism and stuff like that. Do, do you have a sense of, of, I mean, is it just as we've just said here, this is a way of just uh, stamping something down very quickly that addresses something that is is challenging to this this white power structure. Is that yeah, I think it's just a pseudo academic version of accusing civil rights activists of being communists. Uh, right. In the 1960s. Like, so, you know, if you wanted to kind of dismiss Martin Luther King's work, uh, as many did. 
you would just call him a Marxist or a communist, right? right? Um, and right. and then you paint them with that brush, and then you don't even have to engage the arguments. You don't you, you just dismiss them. And I, I think this functions um, in very much the same way. I mean, even you mentioned it; it's it's linked up with. So so what do you do? It's a it's a kind of uh, they paint it as something linked up with like Marxist theory. And it, it's just right. the same old argument dressed up in pseudo academic garb, really. Um, you know, but, but yeah, if you, the history of it really is pretty simple. I mean, it's so, you know, after the passage of the civil rights acts. And so we get some legal traction, right. Um, on civil rights in the country. And yet in the seventies and eighties, it was pretty clear that lots of discrimination and, and, uh, still persisted. And so the, the question was, um, well, how is it that we get these structural reforms and yet we still right. see a lot of discrimination persisting um, and inequalities persisting, right. right? Even in the midst of these structural reforms. And so the real question was to try to look at the power of institutions, right? And how power, how institutions carry on um, uh, and, and transmit, um, you know, racist ideas and, and attitudes across time. Um, and, you know, so it, it's to me, it, it's really. Um, I, I don't know. It's just sort of unconscionable, really. I think for for seminary presidents who know better, like so. For one thing, anyone who knows anything about academ- academia, which these six seminary presidents should, um, knows that like things like critical race theory are a label that gets put to kind of talk about a a, a kind of loose body of work, right? A kind of trajectory of work over time. There's no clear boundaries. This thing doesn't like nothing like critical race theory, just like feminist theory. Right. It doesn't exist as a thing in the world, right? I mean, it's right. a collection of, of, and it's a heavily contested uh, where, where the boundaries of those things are. Who gets to, who gets counts as a feminist scholar? Who doesn't? Um, you know, those are contested boundaries. The roots of it are contested, and that's just the way academia works and proceeds, right? But to pretend that this is like, you know, a brick uh, that you can point to and say that's critical race theory um, is just academically disingenuous and, frankly, ignorant. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so it, it's, it's, it's ignorant at best and deceptive at worst, um, right. you know, so, uh, and intentionally deceptive, um, at worst on the part of people who are supposed to be heads of academic institutions. So I think that's kind of shameful in the first place coming from seminary presidents. Um, but, but secondly, right. It, it, the, the question for all of this is so, uh, you know, when Martin Luther King or Frederick Douglass, um, point to systemic issues, right. Right. And, and, and asking uh, for people to deal with the systemic pieces of racism, all you have to do now is to say, oh, that's critical race theory. And we don't have to answer that. Right. right? So it's just right. a, it's, it's just a shield. Um, so, you know, my worry is that now um, every every theologian of color is going to be suspect inside of Southern Baptist seminaries, because e- pretty much every theologian of color is going to draw attention to the systemic right. um, inequalities um, in the country and and think theologically um, in, in those terms. So, you know, I think that, um, and, it, and it, I think it doubles down, one, one last point on this um, is I think it doubles down on perhaps one of the biggest sins of white Christian theologians um, uh, and, 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 uh, and academics, and that is uh, this narrowing of all of religion and all of Christianity to a hyper-individualistic way of thinking that's just about individual salvation and has no place for systemic injustice um, in its right. theology. No, that that makes perfect sense. Um, that absolutely does. And that leads me back to this definition of racism, because the one thing I was thinking as I read your book, I was thinking about people that I wanted to gift it to. And I may still, but you know how that goes. Um, 
But, uh, <laughs> but I was thinking, and I even kind of ran some of this through one of my friends who I grew up with is because the way you, you know, some of the pulling you're pulling on, uh, in terms of contemporary views, I mean, where you say that if you go to church more, you're more likely to hold to some of these racial resentment kind of issues. And so then those ones that you had in there about, uh, Confederate statues, black athletes, kneeling, uh, black lives matter, uh, police brutality, whether it's systemic or, or just one-offs. Um, mm-hmm. it strikes me that those people I'm thinking of are not going to see those as manifestations of racism. So that they're, they're going to read the book and go, wait, I thought you were going to say uh, that I'm a racist when, and this is, this is what you're arguing, right? Is it their yeah. definition of racism is purely individualistic. It's about personal animus not about anything systemic. And I have to say, it, one of the things that struck me is I'm curious, why wouldn't you gravitate to that? Why wouldn't you look at that and say, um, to a certain degree, it's, it's something that says, okay, I don't have to focus completely on my inner kind of biases, right? I can say, okay, these are systemic issues that we can all kind of address. But that, that seems to be very confronting. Is that, is that fair? I think it's fair. I mean, I, I think it's because, you know, the simplest thing to do is to say, I don't harbor any ill will uh, toward anyone else. But, but if I have to ask a question about why I live in an all white suburb, um, if I have to ask a question about why my church is in an all white suburb and it used to be in the city. Right. Um, those are much harder questions to answer, right. They kind of get right. to the heart of the matter. If I have to ask, like, does it have anything to do with me? that the average wealth and income and the average likelihood of uh, getting COVID uh, is higher for my African-American brothers and sisters. Right. Those are much harder questions to ask. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you give me a, cause the one thing I understand the lost cause ideology, I've taught that many times. Can you explain succinctly for me? And, and I know you do in the book, but for some reason I'm having difficulty kind of Painting it down, this lost cause theology that you say came out of that, and I, and I think you connect that to this eschatology, uh, right? Of the the leading up yeah. to or the uh, what is that? Uh, premillennial. Sorry, I'm. I I think I've tried to purge all that stuff out of my head from from. Yeah, yeah, up, yeah. Know, but, um, but is that what you're talking about? Is it is that it was this gravitating to all right? We lost uh, lost this kind of ideal so- uh, society that was based on slavery, but. Is, is the lost cause theology the idea that somehow it's not that slavery would come back? Is it? Yeah, well, in its earliest form, it was actually. Uh, um, I mean, it, and so it, you know, it, it's evolved over time. I mean, but in its earliest forms, I, it was absolutely that there were, you know, it was the whole South is going to rise again. I mean, in, right. in a very literal way um, right. in, in early. And so, and part of that was uh, successful, right? Part of it was overthrowing Reconstruction. Yep. Um, and federal occupation of the South, um, and 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 uh, kicking out all the elected African Americans, and and preventing African Americans voting. I mean, all of that was part of that agenda, right? right. Um, and again, it was not just it was theologically justified. I mean, if you go back and listen to the prayers of um, Basil Manley Sr., we talked about right, who who was the chaplain of the kind of the like leading chaplain of the Confederacy. He was the guy who held the Bible. When Jefferson Davis took the oath of office for the, as the president of the Confederacy, he was also the founding board president at Southern Seminary, um, uh, which one of those six seminaries that signed that statement. Um, um, and, um, and and so he's a very prominent guy, and you know he's he's preaching, um, you know, very clearly. Like, again, th- this is God's will for humans. Like that, 
that prayer, the invocation that he gave, I mean, really talks about um, the Confederacy as the as the realization of God's ultimate mm. ideal for human society. Like it was the representation of what of a kind of divine social order and political order. Um, now, you know, that tune has to change a bit after a kind of defeat. Um, and it's clear, but there are these other things like overthrowing um, reconstruction. Uh, but I think what, what, in, what ends up happening is, is the, you know, I think it's not worth getting caught up in the post-millennial, pre-millennial labels that even confuse me if I talk about them too long. Um, but the, uh, but I think the, the main point is this, that like that, that sense of society progressing, right. Where the Confederate way of kind of, you know, white enslavers owning African-Americans and all set up under the idea of, of Christian theology and belief. Um, that was seen to be a kind of progressive way that society had been um, kind of moving toward. Um, and then after defeat, that called that into question, right? Um, and so there was this little period where there was a kind of lost cause, um, uh, didn't actually mean it was lost. It meant we we're going to bring it back, right, is, is what that meant. Um, and after that be became um, not a political reality. What we saw, though, was it continued on. Uh, and then the, the eschatology or the end times theology shifted so that no longer was it about realizing in real time uh, God's ideal for society, because that didn't seem politically possible anymore, right? Uh, but it was going to happen in the hereafter gotcha. then. But that had all kinds of effects, right? That it, that it also undermined a basic sense of concern for social justice, because right. if it's not really part of what Christians are doing um, if it, it is if that if that is not about bringing about a more ideal a more just society year over year over year, then you know you can let all kinds of things go right. You can just right. you can just focus on um, you know my own personal relationship with Jesus, and you don't have to be so concerned with injustice in the world. But you know at the end of the day, I think that does um, really distort um, the Christian faith, right? And it, right. it makes people unconcerned. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr., this great line in Letter from Birmingham Jail, where he's just mystified at why white Christians aren't standing up for civil rights. And he said, who are these people sitting safely behind their anesthetizing stained glass windows? You know, and I think that's that's what happens is that that kind of theology then serves mostly to blunt white Christian consciences, right. to, to lull them to sleep, even while injustice rages uh, around them. And by the way, if you're at the top of the social pyramid, right, the power pyramid, as many white Christians were, that's a pretty convenient theology to hold. Right. Right. I mean, it was it was Billy Graham telling telling the civil rights movement they were they were asking for too much. It was uh, James Cohen yeah. talking about, um, you know, white pastors telling their their sister church, the black uh, church to not worry about civil rights, focus on your personal relationship. You'll get justice in heaven. That's 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 what you're mm -hmm. talking about. So it's, yeah. it's something that's not just a reconstruction or post reconstruction period. That legacy continues to the point that we have. And by the way, I was going to point out on Twitter one time I got I, I was uh, somebody ended a conversation with me when I raised your book and said, well, you just went CRT on me. So I'm done. And I was like, oh, nice. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a defensive conversation stopper. Right. Yeah. Um, for convenience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me finish just with a couple. Of, I, I have a couple just if you don't mind, a couple of personal sure. questions uh, about yeah. You just because, uh, you know, you describing your your journey through this uh, uh, from Sunday school and, ch and church and then going to seminary. I thought about going to seminary when I was I was younger um, and then he, you end up at Emory for a Ph.D. 
And and you describe obviously why you decided to write this book. I mean, what what you saw, especially with the Charlottesville uh, uh, response and stuff like that. But it feels like that this was germinating. I have two questions. One of them, yeah. you used to go to Emory because you recognized that there was there was an ideological something going on. I mean, I know Emory is not exactly some flaming liberal, you know, uh, woke university, but um, but compared to Southwestern at least now, what was yeah. that a conscious decision on your part that you needed to broaden your influences or? Yeah, I think that was part of it. And I, I think, you know, Emory, um, you know, I went to the graduate division of religion and they had um, the program I was in was a social ethics program. And I, and I think it was the social uh, part of that, that I realized uh, I, I didn't have much purchase on um, given my educational background, right. That, that it was all fairly individualistic right. and, I didn't have a lot of tools or vocabulary even for talking about systemic issues or even a lens at whatever metaphor you want to use a lens for seeing more sociologically. Um, and so it was a, a program that had a, you know, great sociology, sociology of religion program that intersected with law and political theory. Um, and that also still took theology seriously. Um, right. And so that was a really great, you know, um, I think combination um, for me there. So that was really what went into yeah, kind of going going there to finish uh, did the PhD there. Okay, um, and I guess the other question I had when I was uh, my wife and I were chatting about this book, she's read it too, and she's she's a big fan. Um, is I was trying to imagine that moment, and it's probably multiple moments where you realize this role of white supremacy. I mean, and I'm kind of curious, somebody who grew up because I I have a sense, and I've I've said this on Twitter. I've used the word betrayal a couple of times in the last four years, looking at the culture that raised me that I thought taught these values. And then I, you know, and then your book actually was like uh, uh, hitting me over the head with what was had been right in front of my face the entire time as a historian, especially. I mean, this is, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not um, unread in, in some of these issues. What what did it feel like for you when that dawned on you that this this culture you'd been raised in was racist? Yeah, well, I think some of the language you use is very familiar to me. I mean, the the sense of you know, so I wasn't until I was in my early twenties that I think I even got the first little you know kind of peek behind the curtain in that Baptist history class I describe in the book where right. I. I mean, I was in my 20s and I learned that our own denomination was actually founded to justify right. uh, slave owning. Like that right. was the primary purpose of the founding right. of our denomination, you know, um, and, and so that rattled my my cage, you know, but I think it sort of stayed with me and sort of gave me like a little foothold to hold on to. And, and you know, that, but that was in my 20s. I'm 52. That was 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's been like a decade, literally a decades long kind of piece by piece. It was reading, um, you know, uh, I think reading what I'm sure would be dismissed in this critical race theory, but reading James Cone, yeah. reading Howard Thurman, um, reading James Baldwin, uh, reading African-American authors, right? right. Um, Frederick Douglass, you know, right. um, who, Toni Morrison, uh, who really, okay, opened my eyes in many ways. And when you, when you see what white Christianity looks like through the lens of an African-American scholar or theologian, um, I mean, that mirror is super helpful. Um, I, I think it, it's, it's, it's shocking in some ways and disturbing, um, but I think liberating at yeah. the same time, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's just been this kind of gradual process. I got some of that in uh, by one professor in particular, um, uh, Jeff Poole at, at Southwestern, who was subsequently fired. 
um, got, uh, and then got it. Yeah, I think a heavier dose of that certainly at, at Emory. But you know, it, but it was really. Um, I mean, the, the precipitating thing I think has been these last four years, uh, really five years, uh, with Dylan Roof, um, you yes. know, killing uh, uh, African Americans in their church, and he himself being, you know, an ELCA evangelical Lutheran. Uh, which is not an evangelical denomination, right? It's a mainline denomination, right. being a member in good standing and and kind of see reading his journal, really, um, the, where he integrated his Christian faith with these white supremacist views in such a seamless and effortless way. Um, I think that and then Charlottesville, it was, it was it was that I think that really made me start um digging in and doing more reading. Um, and then it was Charlottesville that I think made me put pen to paper um at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I guess finally, I mean, I know you write, and and I've I've seen other pieces you've written. Um, but in, in the book, you talk about some kind of semblance of hope. You use those two two churches uh, that are both First mm-hmm. Baptist, one white, one black. Um, looking at the sort of resilience of that, I mean, whether it's uh, I'm watching the 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 pushback on Beth Moore on Twitter, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, the the CRT as as several black pastors uh you know were saying it took 150 years to reject uh slavery and segregation but it took one year or less than that to reject the uh, critical race theory um are you still hopeful that this kind of uh reform can happen uh for for the white church uh you know i'm i'm hopeful and um i'm i'm certainly thankful that the white church is bigger than the southern baptist church which yes. i'm not so hopeful about um uh, and it, it's a mixed bag because I think J.D. Greer, on the one hand, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, had signaled some different directions right. um, prior to this last stunt, um, you know, that that he had um, indicated, for example, that he was not going to use a gavel uh, that was uh, uh, given by John Broadus, one of the early um, slaveholding members of the SBC, uh, didn't feel comfortable doing that. He was on Twitter saying, we should absolutely say Black Lives Matter. We shouldn't be pushing back on that term. And that's new. I mean, that wasn't there five years ago when Black Lives Matter, you know, emerged on the scene. Um, so, you know, I think there, even there, there's, I think, some mixed messages. I think, unfortunately, he he endorsed this move by the, uh, these, these, I was really disappointed to see him endorsing that because I think he's, he he and maybe Russell Moore have been one of the people who've had more sensitivities here and, and, um, and a conscience about, uh, our history. Uh, but, you know, here's the other thing. I am seeing some other things happening. In the Episcopal Church, um, they're starting to be a real serious conversation about reparations, uh, for example. There are a number of funds being set up. New York, Maryland, Texas have all set up, um, you know, actual funds, like with, you know, more than a million dollars in them, like real money. Um, and I think hopefully more to come as they're taking seriously, I think, you know, their own history and, and legacy. Places like Georgetown, um, Virginia Theological Union, um, other uh, Virginia Theological Seminary, other educational institutions, or um, Johns Hopkins, most recently, I think, taking this, um, you know, this legacy seriously and asking the question of, like, what do we owe uh, people? How do we repair? And, you know, I I think that's a transactional language. I I actually think it's more important for Christians to use the language of repair. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than who we, rather than the kind of a transact transactional, who do we owe what, but like, how do we repair the damage? I think is the more theologically, um, faithful way to ask this question. Um, so how do we repair the damage? Um, you know, and that's certainly going to require something costly, like, you know, in actual money, uh, kind of property, 
but but you know things that, that actually have teeth that's going to require those kinds of, of moves. And then I, I do think about um, the two, two things like since I turned in so I you know turned in the book a, a little over a year ago um, for publication. And I would not have imagined, uh, though, um, the kind of national movement for uh, racial justice that we've seen over the last summer uh, happening. Um, I find some hope in that. Um, yeah, I spent uh, several weeks in Richmond uh, doing research for the book. And, you know, when I was there, I walked pretty regularly all along Monument Avenue, you know, just to kind of be in the shadow of those massive monuments to the Confederacy uh, there. And there's five five big ones there on Monument Avenue for the five. The statues are gone uh, now, um, and the fifth one's slated to be removed, uh, just pending legal um, kind of wranglings over who has the authority to remove it. Um, and and then you know I would say the in my home state of Mississippi, right. the flag. Um, there was a vote uh, to remove the Confederate battle flag, which is the last remaining vestige of that and a state flag. And again, if you had asked me a year ago when I turned right. the book when that was going to happen in the Mississippi, I you know I, I would say maybe my children will see it. I hope. Right. Um, so, and, and yet here we are, you know, less than six months later. So clearly I think there's a movement and I, I think that's the important thing to say is that if you ask the question, so why, why the backlash, why does six seminary presidents, right. To kind of go back to this thing, take their time, effort, and social capital and invest it into something like a statement against critical race theory. I think it's because they realize the moment of reckoning is coming mm. and this is a doubling down defensive mm. move to try to avoid it. Um, but I think there's some good news in that, right? That that the that they are feeling the winds of social change coming for them. Yeah. Um, and I, but I and I think the real question for white Christians is those winds are 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 moving. And you know, and and biblically speaking, we we often talk about winds as the spirit, right? And I would say we are sensing the spirit moving. Hmm. Um, and the real question for white Christians is: Are they going to resist it? Or are they going to work with it? It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this.